Do take your seats and uh, turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one with you, to uh, John chapter 2. And we're going to read together uh, the first uh, 11 verses, uh, the story of Jesus and the wedding uh, at Cana. Let's read together and be blessed by God's living word. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, For my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory to his disciples, and they believed in him. And we thank God for this reading of his holy word. And I've just realized I've left my clicker somewhere down by, never mind. Oh, here it is. <laughs> thank you very much, Rose. It's a real joy, friends, to be with you this morning. Uh, I really appreciated uh, Ross's just gracious, thoughtful leadership of the service this morning uh, and just to have the privilege of bringing God's Word to you. I also want to bring to you the warm Christian greetings uh, of your brothers and sisters in uh, Thursdale Baptist Church, way up in Caithness, uh, the most northerly uh, mainland Baptist Church in Britain. We, we have that uh, title and honour, uh, and uh, the Lord's been doing great things uh, in the church over the last uh, year. Uh, Actually, well, I'll have been in the church as their pastor for a, a year come next Sunday. Uh, and over the last year, the Lord has given us the, the thrilling privilege of leading us into uh, a new building project. We were worshipping on a very small, uh, really a, a sort of Nissan Hut type building, really. And it was far too small for our purposes. And uh, the Lord's given us uh, the real thrill and, and blessing uh, of moving into uh, a new building. So I'm told. From what I've been hearing uh, this week, the carpets are going down, the chairs are being put in, so it's getting really exciting. And we're looking forward to having our first worship service uh, next Sunday morning. Uh, so you might want to remember uh, that in your prayers uh, for next Sunday. We're also about to launch in the next probably two months or so, maybe three months, uh, at a push, uh, our uh, CAP money course as well, uh, to help those struggling with, with debt uh, in the community. And we we'll look forward to that ministry uh, as well. So there's good things happening uh, and I just wanted to share that with you uh, and to bring uh, the warm greetings of my own fellowship to you this morning. We are very much uh, regularly, uh, we pray for yourselves and for us as well, uh, that the Lord would bless you in your work in ministry here uh, in Airdrie. It's always nice to come to uh, a new place. As I said, I've not been in Airdrie before. And often as you come as a, as a visitor, there are things that perhaps you see that if you come here every week, you, you don't perhaps see 
uh, and maybe just take for granted. Uh, and it was quite interesting, as I walked in the door of the church, uh, through the wall, really, uh, the boundary wall, uh, there's a bakery, apparently, that sells cakes and has a, uh, an award for the best scotch pies as well. Uh, very handy uh, near the church, but I think maybe I'll go easy on that. Uh, I also notice, I don't know if this is an innovation Ross has brought in, but I see that there's no clock here in the church, so I don't know if that's a signal to, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, uh, there we go. Uh, but it's a real joy uh, to bring uh, God's Word. Let's then look uh, at these scriptures uh, together. As we know, one of the, the famous incidents from the life uh, of Jesus that takes place at the beginning of his ministry. And uh, this is one of these bits of scripture that you can take out and tackle from several different perspectives. Uh, John's gospel is quite different from the other three. They're called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, but John's a bit different. He's a bit deeper, a bit more theological, a bit more of a mystic, maybe even, perhaps. Uh, and often when you look at what John has to say, uh, there's different levels and different layers that you can kind of peel back, as it were, to get a richer and the fuller meaning uh, and a, a deeper understanding uh, of the passage. And this would certainly be a very good uh, example. Uh, but I don't want to get into that this morning. But just to simply acknowledge it, we could look at uh, what this passage tells us about Jesus' person, about the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It also has something to say about the end times, and it has a, a point forward to what's known as the marriage feast of the Lamb that's uh, referred to at the end of the Bible. Uh, in uh, Revelation. Uh, so these are some of the areas that we could have looked at this morning, and I'm sure Ross will unpack those for you in greater detail, who knows, uh, in the time to come. But for us this morning, what I simply want to do is to look at this story from what I think primarily it's teaching us. And it's simply this, the difference that inviting Jesus into a situation of human drama and personal crisis can make. Because we all go through these things from time to time in our lives' experience. So I want to pose and then answer two questions that I think come to us from this passage. Question number one. What happens when the wine runs out? What happens when the wine runs out? Maybe for you that is quite a specific issue. The wine for you is not perhaps physical wine we're talking about, maybe the wine for you is, maybe it's in the area of health. Maybe it's in the area of finance. Maybe it's in the area of relationships, that the love that you once had for the nearest and dearest is not once what it was. Maybe it's relationships perhaps in church. Maybe it's concern over uh, long-term employment prospects. The, the list could be, could be endless. And the wine is running out for you perhaps in a very particular and specific area. And that's the question that's perhaps coming to your mind, even as we think about these things at the beginning of our reflection this, this, after, this, this morning. What happens when the wine runs out, when the thing that powers the engine of your life is no longer available? The tank is empty. You're running on fumes. What happens when the wine runs out? Question number two. And this is the most important of the two questions. Can Jesus redeem that situation? I've had the privilege of over many, many years now traveling with many of God's people and, and many who are not God's people as well through some of the difficult and darkest moments of their lives. 
And often it's been around these two questions that they have been struggling and wrestling. And I've had the privilege of seeking to struggle and wrestle with them as they have sought to answer uh, these questions as well as to ask them as well. Maybe you're here in church this morning and it, it, it chimes off in your own mind and heart something in your own life and experience. What happens when the wine runs out? And the question that perhaps you're asking yourself and maybe you're not even admitting to anyone else, can Jesus redeem that situation? Maybe the situation that you come to church with that's lying heavy on your heart seems so difficult, so black, so problematic that you're thinking to yourself, I don't even know if the Lord can really deal with it. I don't really know if even He has the power to deal with it. And you think to yourself, I know I'm not supposed to think like that, but that's really what's going on in my heart. But fortunately, nobody else knows that. Well, friends, if that's where you are this morning, bless you for coming, because this is God's word to your heart this morning as we ask and then answer these two questions. Let's start off with the first question. What happens when the wine runs out? Well, there are four things that I think John uh, takes us through. And you'll find uh, the first of them uh, in uh, verse uh, three. And that is quite simply disbelief. Jesus' uh, mother says to him, the wine is gone or there, there is no more wine. The one thing that couldn't happen, mustn't happen and shouldn't happen has now tragically taken place. And Mary in the backroom staff are now presented with the horrific reality that the one thing on which the whole wedding and its continuation and its success depended was gone. They were now empty. They'd run out. They were running, as we say, on fumes. And at this point, the crisis really begins to set in. Because Mary and the servants, they realize the situation, but they realize something else. There's not a blind thing they can do to make any difference. They are stuck with this situation. They cannot sort it. It's too broken. It's too much of a problem. It's too much of a crisis. They have come to the end of their resources. There is not a thing they can do to rescue and remedy this situation. Perhaps for some of us this morning, that is exactly where you find yourselves too. The resources, whatever they are, the wine, whatever form that takes for you in your life and experience at this moment, on this particular Sunday morning, the, the resources are running out. And there's going to be a day coming, perhaps soon, when they will have finally run out. There's nothing left to draw on. There's nothing left in the tank. The things that you have relied on and depended on, they've, they've just evaporated. They're finished. There's nothing left. Maybe it's your relationship, perhaps, with your marriage partner. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your children's marriage partners. Maybe it's your grandchildren. Maybe it's, it's work. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's uh, folks that you relate to here in the church, in, in the Lord's family. It could be a whole, list, a whole list of things. And you sit here in church on Sunday morning and outwardly you're giving the impression that everything is all right and that everything is, is going along swimmingly in your life, that you're in control, that you're handling it, that everything is, is just going along as it normally should be. But inwardly, you're in a state of shock. Inwardly, you are in emotional turmoil. Outwardly, you give the appearance of all is placid, all is peaceful, all is well. But inside, it's all ferment and turmoil. Lord, what am I going to do? I don't even know how I'm going to get through this next week. The one thing that you feared might happen, but hopefully would never happen, has happened, or you know, is about to happen. 
and you've got absolutely no clue how on earth you're going to deal with it. It's just like, is this happening? I, 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 don't, I don't believe this is actually happening to me. This is the kind of thing you hear that happens to other people. It doesn't happen to me. And I'm a child of God. I've been singing his praises this morning. So why should this happen to me? I cannot believe that this is happening. Well, that's where you are this morning. You're in good company because Mary and these servants at this wedding in Canaan were in exactly the same situation. But here's the good news, folks, this morning. It is precisely into that situation that Jesus was going to minister in his grace and love and transforming power. So there's disbelief. And then secondly, there is, and it follows hard in the heels of the, of the first, there is vulnerability and loss of control. Verse 3 again, what happens next is that Mary and the servants realize the situation is way beyond their ability to deal with it. And at that point, vulnerability rapidly begins to set in. How are we going to handle this? What are we going to do to make this situation get better or go away? You see, friends, deep down, every one of us love to be in control. It's part of the human condition. It's part of being fallen human beings. We like to be in control. Some of us have stronger control issues than others, but we all have it. And don't think you don't, because we all do. We love to be in control. We love to feel that we can handle and cope with our environment. Why do we want to be in control? That's very simple. It makes us feel secure. If you're in control of something, think about this, you'll see what I'm saying is true. If you're in control of something, you feel secure, you feel safe, you feel established. But the minute control is taken away, then the world can become a dark and scary and intimidating place. And that's exactly where Mary and the servants are. They've got it all worked out, it's all planned out, and suddenly they are plunged out of a clear blue sky, as we say, into this place of vulnerability and loss of control. Things are now coming apart around about them. Events are spiraling out of control, and they didn't see it coming, and they don't know how they are going to deal with it. And so suddenly, from being in a position of security and control, and I can cope with my environment, and I know what I'm doing, and I'm in charge, and all this sort of stuff, they're suddenly plunged into a position of now complete weakness, of powerlessness, of being unable to sort this situation out. One of the many things, friends, I've learned over the years, serving the Lord as, as, as a pastor, is that very often, when we come to those moments of weakness and vulnerability and powerlessness, that the real character of the human heart comes out. The real person begins to emerge. Not the image that we often want to present to those around about us, but the real person, raw and unvarnished, then begins to come out as we begin to wrestle with that and face up to that difficulty and that reality. For some, it's almost a bit like a, a bereavement so important. Is being in charge, being in control, being in that place of power, it is to them. And when it's gone, when life conspires to take that away from them, to shake the foundations of the house on which they have built so much, they don't find that very easy to deal with and to cope with. But yet here again, we see Mary and the servants at this wedding experiencing something that perhaps many of us or some of us this morning perhaps are experiencing in our own lives as well. And as we go into the new week that God has given to us. Vulnerability and loss of control. I don't like this position. I don't like how it is. I don't like 
how it makes me feel. Well, there are those friends who've been before you and have travelled that path that perhaps you're travelling this morning. But what happens next, stage three? This is perhaps not really very much of a surprise. There's fear of discovery. Verse three. This, I would suggest, is perhaps the most powerful of all the emotions. Imagine this in your mind's eye. The wedding is now in full swing. The wine is still flowing, and people are still enjoying themselves, eating and drinking and celebrating. The bride and groom are sitting in the place of honour among family and friends and are enjoying being the centre of attention and the focus of so much love and goodwill towards them. But in the background, the wine has gone. And Mary and the servants are now waiting for that awful moment that they know will soon come when the request from the front of the house, as we say, comes to the back of the house and say, please, can you send in some more wine? And they're going to have to say with shame-faced embarrassment, I'm sorry, the wine has run out. They are waiting for the awful moment when what has been going on secretly behind the scenes now for some time is finally going to come out for all and sundry to see and to hear about. The wine is gone. The moment of discovery is about to, to now descend upon them. And so what do they do? They're in that terrible position where all they can do is watch and wait for the inevitable situation that they know is going to happen finally to break over their heads as they sweat it out in those last few moments of private fear before everyone knows that the wine has gone and has run out. Maybe that sounds familiar for some of us maybe here in church this morning. You live in fear of the moment of discovery when it's going to come out uh, as we say in the wash, that everyone's now going to know that the appearance that has been given, that everything is all right, is nothing more than appearance, because behind it, the substance and the reality is something that is radically different from that which has been uh, presented as the public face and the public image. Fear of discovery, fear of being found out, the dread of that suddenly uh, happening, and the real situation being publicly exposed. Then we come to the fourth and the final uh, thing I want to look at, and this actually, I think, is the thing that really uh, drives the whole thing forward. This was the concern, verses two and three, the threat of public disgrace. Again, picture the scene in your imagination. There's the bride and groom sitting in full view of family and friends giving this party of all parties on this, the happiest day of their lives, giving the party of their lives. That would have been talked about for years afterwards, maybe even in time, to their own children. It would have taken perhaps months, maybe even of years of planning and saving. Uh, Canaan was a wee village, so it was a, a sort of peasant rural community. They weren't very well off. So a lot of time and money would have gone into this. The whole village would have known about it. Half of the village would have been invited. The families of the bride and the bridegroom, extended family, and, and all the rest of it, they're all piling in uh, to this uh, place where this wedding reception was going uh, to be held. They're on public display, and the fruits of their labors are to be seen and enjoyed. So you, you've got the kind of idea. And in the midst of that, they are threatened with the most cruel form of public disgrace that could befall you in the ancient world and would never be ever forgotten and would never be forgiven. And that would be failure in hospitality. The wine ran out. It would have been a failure in hospitality in Eastern society that never ever would have been uh, forgiven or forgotten. You can imagine the comments 
Oh yes, I went to your wedding and it was going really well, but the wine ran out. That wasn't so good, was it? You can imagine the small village way of speaking and mentality and the way it would have been presented and cast up years later at a moment's notice. That's the context that this is taking place in. And that's exactly what Mary and the servants knew fine well they were about to be plunged headlong into. Threat of public disgrace, of being embarrassed, of being put to shame. But you know, friends, God does not want his children to be embarrassed. He does not want his children to be put to shame. Satan likes to embarrass Satan likes to put you to shame in any way he can, but that's not the Lord's business. Satan's in the embarrassing and in the humiliation business. That's not Jesus' way. He wants to come and prevent that from happening. He wants to come and minister to you in that way that he knows that you need. And so Jesus comes and he ministers into this situation because he does not want his children who know him and love him and bear his name to be embarrassed and to be put to shame. So what does the Lord do? Well, he moves, as we're going to notice now, in power to provide for that situation. But that's before Jesus steps into that situation. And maybe that's the situation that you are in this morning. Disbelief. I cannot believe this has happened. Vulnerability. Loss of control. How am I going to deal with it? How is it going to work out? Fear is gripping your heart, has perhaps paralyzed your heart. And the awful moment, what happens when I get found out? How is it all going to look? How is it all going to come out? And these are the things that are consuming you. As you wrestle with that issue, what happens when the wine runs out? But with that, we come to the second and the most important of our two questions. The question is this. Can Jesus redeem that situation? Well, let's see what happens. Four stages that, again, John uh, takes us through. Here's the first in verse 3. Mary presents the situation to Jesus. I love the simplicity and the directness of Mary. She doesn't muck about. She just says it as it is. She comes to Jesus and she simply says, there's no more wine. There's no ceremony. There's no great speech. She just says, Lord, Jesus, there's no more wine. There it is. There's the situation. In this simple act, what is Mary doing? She is acknowledging, friends, that there's a situation that she is not capable of dealing with. And so wisely and in humility, she comes and she presents the situation to Jesus. But what could Mary have done as possible alternatives? Well, perhaps she might have decided, well, let's um, take some of these empty stone jars and let's go around some of the neighbors' houses and see if we can get some wine from them. Or she might have thought, well, perhaps we could uh, nip down uh, to the nearest Tesco Extra and uh, we'll, we'll, get some, uh, we'll get some wine there. Or maybe she could have thought to herself, well, actually, this is going to be a huge social embarrassment, and I don't actually want to put my name to this or be in any way seen to be linked with it, so I'm just going to disappear into the background and let this whole mess uh, unfold itself, but I will not have my name attached to it. And she could have done all of those things, but she doesn't. Instead, she brings this whole crisis that's unfolding, and she presents the whole sorry situation to Jesus. And find perhaps that is what you need to do with the Lord, maybe for the first time in your life this morning. You've been wrestling with it long enough. You've been burdened with it long enough. It's bringing you down. Maybe it's perhaps even getting to the point where it's affecting your own health. 
and it's time to stop pretending that everything is all right, and it's time to stop trying to find solutions that you know actually really are not going to sort the situation out, and acknowledge that the situation is a bit of a mess, and bring the whole thing to the Lord and say, Lord, here it is. In all its complexity, in all its ugliness, in all its brokenness, in all its whatever it is for you. Here it is, Lord. I'm not going to pretend any longer. One of the things I've noticed over many years of service is that we're very good friends, particularly, I think, as Christians, at playing the game of let's pretend. Well, folks, it's time we stopped it because it's not doing us any favors. It's not helping us. It's not being real and it's not being honest. And it's not honoring the Lord either. Perhaps it's time to get real and come before the Lord, maybe on our knees, maybe with tears and say, Lord, this is how it really is. And I bring my life and I bring the issues of my life and the situation that I can't deal with and I bring it to you and lay it down at your feet. Mary presents the situation. It's not all right. And Jesus, I need your help. I need you to come and step into this situation. But the second thing that Mary does, having presented the situation to Jesus, this is the hard bit, verses 4 and 5, Mary surrenders the situation to Jesus' lordship. It's in these verses that Mary makes the key decision that actually in the end ends up turning around the whole uh, scenario. Here's the key decision. For her, it was to release this situation that she faced and the fear and anxiety that it was causing her and those around her to release this whole situation and to hand it over to the lordship of her son, Jesus Christ. Verse 5, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She comes to the place of letting go. She comes to the place of surrender. She is willing to hand that situation over to the Lord. She is willing to let go of control, to give up control. And she knows that she needs to do that. And perhaps for someone this morning, you need to do that as well to give up control, to stop trying to be in control and to hand over control to one whose hands are firmer, surer, and steadier than yours are because you've been wrestling and holding on to it for far too long. She surrenders the situation and as a result of that, she begins to know the peace that Jesus offers and the power of his transforming grace. Real change only was possible When Mary comes to that place where she says, I need not just to present the situation in all its complexity to Jesus, but I have to take one step further. I have to let it go. I have to hand it over to him and let him deal with it and let him handling it. You see, friends, presenting a situation to Jesus is fine. And we're very good at that, I think, very often. But when it comes to step number two, that's a bit of a different matter. We don't want to give up control. We find that very difficult. It cuts against and goes against the grain of the sinful human heart. But often the Lord brings us to that place where we have to learn that lesson, that we have to let go. We have to hand over control of that situation to the Lord to let him deal with that situation by his grace. Maybe it's time, friends, to stop wrestling with God and wrestling with that issue. Remember what happens to Jacob way back in uh, Genesis uh, 32. Jacob wrestles with guards. He does it all night. He's a persistent fellow, and he was quite a strong man, even though he was getting on a bit. He wrestles with guards. 
And he ends up being wounded by God because that was where the Lord had to deal with him. Jacob is wounded by God in order that he would be healed by God. He gets a new name and a new nature as well as part of that struggle. But he wrestles with God and he will not give up. And the Lord has to deal with him in that way. He was a wrestler, that was his name. The wrestler, the twister, the heel grabber. And he would not yield, he would not surrender control. And God had to break him lovingly that he could refashion him and remodel him and remake him and not become Jacob the twister and the deceiver, but to become Israel the father of many. And perhaps that's a work of grace God has to perform in your heart and mine, all our hearts this morning, I'm sure that he does. It's time perhaps for you as an individual to stop wrestling and instead to nestle into God's love, his grace and his mercy, to know the warm embrace of his arm being thrown around you, to know his presence, to know that he will stand with you and lead you through the storm, the difficulty, whatever it is that you're going through. You see, friends, we have to learn perhaps that we do not conquer uh, situations by conquering them by might and power and force. We overcome actually by surrendering. It is as we kneel, we triumph. It is as we yield, we are given the victory. That's the upside-down, topsy-turvy values of the kingdom of God. It's time, perhaps, to stop wrestling and to start nestling into God's love, into His grace, into His care. And as Mary does that, and as she surrenders the situation to Christ's Lordship, the whole thing then begins to change and begins to transform. She hands it over to the Lordship of Christ. Maybe you've been carrying something for too long. And God's word to you is, it's time to hand it over to me. I love that verse in Isaiah. It talks about uh, the, the, the loving care of God. And it says, the government shall be upon his shoulders. Folks, the problem that many of us have in our lives is that we run our lives as if the government is on our shoulders and we wonder why we get bowed down and tired and wearied. It's not how it's meant to be. The government of your life, folks, is not meant to be on your shoulders. It's meant to be on his shoulders. Let him be the burden bearer. Let him be the one who carries you through these things. He is the one who is meant to be the one who has the, the, the government of your life. What does the Lord say? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for it is easy and light. I am gentle and humble in spirit. Maybe you're wearing the harsh, oppressive yoke of control and of just being the boss and of just living that way, taking the government upon your life, and it's just grinding you into the, into the ground, really. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. So what does that mean? It means you've got to take off your yoke. Take off that burden. Take it down. Take it off at the foot of the cross. As you come to the Lord's table tonight, folks, use that as that moment to take that burden off, that sin, whatever it is, and lay it down. Because it's just putting you into the ground spiritually. And take on that lighter yoke that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to you with love and grace and compassion and deep understanding. Let him be the one who is your burden bearer. So Mary, she surrenders the situation to the Lordship of Christ. And then there's practical follow-through. Uh, thirdly, the Servants Act 7 and 8, in obedience and faith. 
And this must have seemed absolutely ridiculous. Why on earth would you do this? They put water into these empty uh, stone jars. Now, think about this for a minute. We're told that there were six, and they held between 20 to 30 gallons. Now, I don't know how long that would have taken to fill them, but it would have taken, I think, a pretty long time. So they would have had plenty of time to think about what they were doing, putting this water more and more and more into these six stone uh, jars. But here's the point, friends. They did it anyway. Regardless of what they were thinking, regardless of the circumstances and the evidence that lay before them, regardless of how ridiculous and foolish it may seem, regardless of how it was contradicting worldly wisdom, nevertheless, they did it for one reason only. Jesus had called them and commanded them to do it. What seemed foolish was that which the Lord was calling them to do. And again, there's a challenge, is it not, for all of us this morning. God is perhaps calling you to do something, and every fiber of your being says, Lord, that's daft. That's not a wise decision. That's not how it should be done. And you're fighting God, and God's coming to you and saying, you need to do this, and you're pushing him back and saying, Lord, no, that's not how I want to behave. That's not how it should be done. And the persistent, loving challenge of heaven comes again and again. You need to do it. But you have as yet refused to do it. The servants didn't. They act in obedience and faith. You see, in many ways, friends, they had no choice. They were, they were desperate. God brings us to that place where we are forced to make decisions that under normal circumstances we would not dream of even making. But they did it. They did it regardless of how it looked. They did it regardless of what they were thinking. They did it regardless of how they felt. They did it for one reason. It was in response to the command of Jesus. That's an excellent reason, friends, for doing what God calls us to do. Because you say so, Lord, I will do it. Remember the story of Peter letting down the nets? They've been out all night fishing, uh, and it's been hard work, and they've caught nothing. And Jesus says, throw down your nets for the catch. And Peter says, we've worked hard, Lord, all night, and we've caught nothing. You can hear the weariness and the depression almost in his voice. But then Peter says, but because you say so, because you say so, I will let down the nets. He's a carpenter telling a fisherman how to do his job. But because you say so, Lord, I'll do it. And we know how the story ends. They've got a massive haul of fish as a result. Nevertheless, Lord, because you say so, I'll do it. Regardless of how I might feel about it and what it might look like. They acted in obedience and faith. And then comes finally the exciting bit at the end that we're all looking forward to, verses 9 and 10. The old wine is replaced by the new wine because what happens is that the master of the banquet is given the water that now has been turned into wine and he turns to the, the bridegroom, the host, and he says, you have you've saved the best until last. This is not the way things usually are done. You put the good stuff out first and then you put the, the, the cheaper, poorer stuff out later on when the wine isn't as good and, and the guests really can't tell the difference. But he says, you've done it the other way around. You have kept the best till last. You see, friends, Jesus had not just redeemed and rescued the situation. He'd given them wine that was even better than that which they had started off with before in the first place. And there are four spiritual principles I want just very briefly uh, talk us through as we finish that I think come to us in these verses 9 
and 10. The first is this, principle number one. The old wine had to run out before the new wine could be given. The old wine had to run out before the new wine could be given. And there are times in our lives, friends, when God can only pour in the new wine of blessing that he wants to give us. It can only happen when the old wine of our old resources is exhausted, is finished, and is gone. Only when we are empty, when our own resources are gone, when our own hoard of resources are finished, it is only in those moments that God can pour in the fullness of the new wine of the kingdom, the fullness of the new wine of blessing that he wants to give us. And we're holding on to our hoarded resources. And God says, I want to give you something far better. I want to pour in the wine of my kingdom. But you're still hanging on to the wee bit left that you have. Then principle number two, secondly, the old wine was insufficient for their present needs. There are times, I do also think, friends, in our lives when we need the new wine for a new situation because the old wine isn't enough. We've learned that as, as a church up in Thursday over the last uh, year. I'd love to tell you the story, but I don't have time as to how we, we came into our new building. But we really needed a new building badly. It was too small, it was beginning to need repair, and it just wasn't fit for purpose. And we needed a, a, a bigger place. And God gave us a bigger place. New wine for a new kingdom, for a new season, for a new ministry, for a new future that God has for us. And he's taken us through uh, that situation. And believe me, there were times it was very scary. And there was a huge amount of money having to be spent. And as deacons, we had to sit and think, oh my goodness me, we've got to take this recommendation to the church meeting. I have never been so nervous in my life, I can assure you. How are they going to, how are they going to cope with it? And bless them, they responded and said, yes, this is what God is calling us as a church to do. New wine for a new season and for a new situation. The old wasn't enough. The new had to come. And that was the same for the situation into which Jesus uh, steps. Then the third principle is that the new wine was the result of conversion. Water was converted or was turned uh, into wine. And friends, as it was with the water, so it can be with you and me this morning. Maybe that's what you need. You need to know the experience of conversion. The Lord changing your heart from being black to white. You need to know that situation of conversion in terms of that situation with which you have wrestled and struggled for perhaps too long and cannot deal with. That situation has got to be converted. It's got to be changed from what it was to what God in his grace now wants it to be. It has to move from the natural to the supernatural that you begin to live and move in that situation in a naturally supernatural way. That's the way God wants it to be. The result, thirdly then, of conversion. And principle number four, the final one is this, that the wine that Jesus gave was better than that which indeed had come before. For the master of the banquet says, you've kept the best till last. You see, one of the lies that Satan tells us is that if we give up things for Christ, Life is going to be boring, it's going to be two-dimensional, it's going to be like black and white. It's not going to be as good as it was. Don't fall for it because it's not true. When we give our lives to the Lord and we hand over our lives to Him, He keeps the best till last. We, we live a life that has a richness and a depth and a dynamism that is a, a multicolored aspect to it, if I can put it that way, that is like nothing you've ever seen before. 
I remember speaking to a really old man, uh, hearing of a really old man in my, one of my earlier pastorates many years ago now, and he was a bit of a rough diamond, let's put it like that, and he came to faith in Christ quite dramatically. And I remember hearing that he said, I, I got out of bed and I pulled the curtains uh, and looked out of my bedroom window on the first day of the rest of my life after I came to faith. And he said, everything looked clearer. He said, that big dirty bus was going up and down the road, but it looked clean to me. Everything looked clean and crisp and fresh and new. He says, the Lord changed even my very eyes, the way I was able to see and to perceive things. He says, that's how radically different he changed my life. That is what I needed. He kept the best till last. He kept the best till last. And the Lord has kept the best for last for you and for me well. That's always the way Jesus works. God is no man's debtor. You will never ever uh, be in a situation where God owes you. You will maybe owe God if I can put it that way, but God is no man's debtor. He gives and he gives and he gives. What does it say in one of our older hymns now? For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he gives and gives and gives again. Heaven's resources, friends, are inexhaustible. The problem is that we don't claim them as we ought to. We're living in poverty, spiritually, very often. And actually, we are royal princes and princesses of the king. We could be living in spiritual glory with splendor, with all the resources of heaven that we need, but we scratch out a, a sort of subsistence, spiritual living and existence when it could be so different. But we need to allow the Lord to come and pour in the new wine to refresh our souls and to transform our lives. You have saved the best till last. And it was the best. Why was it the best? Four wee things to finish. First of all, it was supernatural. Secondly, it was suitable. Thirdly, it was sufficient for the needs of the day and the hour. And it was sweet. And the master of the banquet is simply reflecting on that. You have saved the best until last. And so with that, friends, we come to where we started a few moments ago with our two questions. What happens when the wine runs out? And more importantly, can Jesus redeem that situation? Well, the answer from our passage and from John's gospel is an overwhelming and resounding, yes, he can. Yes, he can. He has the power to redeem that situation. But how? We go back to verse 5. Do whatever he tells you. I don't know what God's telling you to do, folks, but whatever he's telling you to do, as a church, as an individual, do it. For Jesus' sake, do it. Because it will make all the difference to you in the world, and maybe even, perhaps for some this morning, for eternity as well. As you lay that situation down before Jesus and you place it into his hands, or let the Son of God enfold you with his spirit and his love. Let him fill your heart and satisfy your soul. Give him all your tears and sadness. Give him all your years of pain, and you will enter into life in Jesus' name. Jesus, Jesus, come. Fill your lands. Jesus, Jesus, come. Come and fill your lands. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power and simplicity and grace of your word to us this morning. Help us, we pray, Lord, to lay at your feet, to surrender to your lordship, 
to place, Lord, with fearful hands into your strong and unshakable, solid and secure hand, whatever it is that has burdened us and has troubled us. Lord, if we are empty, would you fill us? If we are fearful, would you give us courage? Lord, if we are proud, teach us humility. If we find it difficult to let go, help us to do that. Help us, Lord, to stop wrestling and fighting with you and to nestle, Lord, into the depth of your love and your wonderful grace. Lord, we come. We give ourselves to you now. We ask that you would fill us with the good things that you have for us, believing, Lord, that you have kept the best till last and that the best, Lord, is even yet still to be. Hear our prayer, Father, and help us, we ask, to respond to your word this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we ask.